Here I'm standing with the rain on my face Finding here such unusual grace I'm waiting here Standing where the mercy Welcome to the Vineyard Justice Network podcast. The Vineyard Justice Network exists to empower vineyard pastors and leaders to pursue and enact the justice of God's kingdom. VJN focuses on the interconnectivity of freeing slaves, ending poverty, and tending creation. In this podcast, we will be hearing from Reverend Alexia Salvatierra, Special Assistant to the Bishop for Welcoming Congregations for the Southwest California Synod of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America and co-author of the book Faith-Rooted Organizing. Reverend Salvatierra serves as a consultant for a variety of national and international organizations including World Vision, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, the Christian Community Development Association, Sojourners, and others, and is adjunct faculty at the New York Theological Seminary and Biola University. The title of this talk is The Compassionate Justice of Jesus. pray. Holy Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight and refreshing and energizing and compelling to your people. In the beautiful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So we're here this morning, I think, maybe all of us certainly most of us, because as we look out into the world, there is something that breaks our hearts. Amen? And I'm not just talking about the suffering that is inevitable, that comes from being in a fallen world. You know, we're in a fallen world, the wages of sin are death, people have to die. That breaks our hearts, but that's inevitable suffering. I think we're here because of another level of suffering. Father Gustavo Gutierrez of Peru said that extreme poverty and oppression mean dying before your time. Dying when it is unnecessary, when it is unjust. I was a hospital chaplain in the Philippines a number of years ago, and I worked at two hospitals. I worked at a middle-class hospital called St. Luke's. It was an Episcopal hospital, one mile away was the National Children's Hospital, where they brought the children of the poorest of the poor. And I remember one day that they brought a little baby in with pneumonia. And I was with the doctor. He brought me in as a chaplain because he was going to tell the family that the baby was going to die. And I said to the doctor, wait a minute, this is crazy. This baby doesn't have cancer. This baby has pneumonia. We have antibiotics. And he said, but Alexia, this baby is allergic to penicillin, and that's all we have. So one mile, one mile away was a hospital with 20 
kinds of antibiotics. One mile, life and death. Now, I'm, I'm going to take the fifth about what I did. You can guess. <laughs> but, um, but that's a different kind of heartbreak, that baby dying. So I am sure that you are in this room because there is some kind of unnecessary suffering out there that is breaking your heart. So I want you to get in touch with that a little bit as I go on because that's what I'm going to speak to. The good news this morning is that it's not only our hearts that are broken. One of my favorite prayers, I work part-time for World Vision, and one of my favorite prayers is the prayer of the founder of World Vision, Bob Pierce. He said, break my heart, God, for that which breaks your heart. And it is good news that we are not alone in our heartbreak, but that the heart of Jesus is broken too, that the whole power of the universe hallelujah, is behind our heartbreak. So I was uh, trained as a church planter in my denomination. I'm a Lutheran pastor. And when they train you as a church planter in my denomination, they ask you for your banner scripture. They ask you for the scripture that best expresses your own personal sense of call. And they say, don't think about it very much, just let it come. Isn't that interesting? Like what comes? What came for me was Matthew 9, verses 35 and 36, where Jesus looks at the crowds and he has compassion. And I grew up completely outside the church. My family is half from Mexico and half from Russia, but they are from the anti-church traditions in both those countries. So I became a Christian in the Jesus movement, just as a vineyard was being born. <laughs> that was the story that Stephen told. Um, and part of what drew me to Jesus was his compassion. Not pity. I was raised working poor in Torrance. I would not have been attracted by pity. Compassion is not pity. Compassion is an English word or a Spanish word consisting of two Latin words, com and pasio. Pasio is feel and com is with. Jesus looks at us and he feels our pain as if it is his pain. He feels our hopes and dreams as if they were his hopes and dreams. And that's what moved him on a human level to do all that he did. How many of you have received the compassion of Jesus? I think if we received it, we're compelled to give it. But you know how scriptures unfold over time? Like you keep seeing them more deeply? The first unfolding of that scripture, it came to me as a scripture about compassion. But the first unfolding of that scripture had to do with what Jesus had to do in that scripture before he could have compassion. What did he do first? That's right. He had to look into the hearts of people. He had to know what was hurting them. He had to look into their lives and he had to know what they were longing for. We do not have a compassion problem in the church. We have a vision problem. We often don't see what's going on, even with the people in the seats in our church, let alone in our communities. So if we're going to respond as God wants us to respond, we have to first see as he sees. That was really wonderful that that actually came up in the hymn. I'm not surprised. You know, God does those little kisses right there. It is right in the hymn, right before I come up. So how does Jesus see? How do we have to learn how to see? 
Um, I just want to say very quickly, because I don't have a lot of time, and I have a lot I want to share with you, that there are four ways I just want to lift up that we have to see. The first one, um, I think of the movie Bread and Roses, about the janitor's struggle for a living wage. It's a mixed movie, but there's a great scene. There's a scene where there are two janitors on the floor, and they're doing something with the little space between the hallway and the elevator in a big corporate building, and you see these legs come down the way, you know, dressed well with their briefcases, and you can hear the voices talking ahead, up above, and the, they walk right down these legs, and they step right over the janitors into the elevator without missing a beat. They don't miss a word. And one janitor turns to the other, and he says, Simone, do you know that we have magic powers? And the other janitor says, us? Magic power? Are you crazy? He said, we have the magic power to become invisible. That's what happens. Jesus gives us the magic power to be visible <laughs> to each other. Amen? I think of the scripture in Luke where the beggar, the other Lazarus, right, is sleeping with all his sores in front of the door of the rich man. And it doesn't say that the rich man rejected him, judged him. The rich man just didn't even see him. And the rich man goes to hell. We don't see. Lord, may we see the invisible people all around us. That's the beginning of seeing with Jesus' eyes. But we have to go farther than that. Because often when we see people, we only see them in terms of their need. We see them as buckets of need. I love Hebrews, one of my other favorite scriptures. I've been really, you know how certain scriptures you just got really into at certain times? I'm really into Hebrews 13, 1 through 3. It's a mind blower. It's an amazing set of scriptures. But Hebrews 13, 2 says, Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, because you may be entertaining who in disguise? Angels. An angel is not just a celestial being in scripture. An angel is any messenger of God set to bring a blessing. So that invisible person, that other, that stranger, may actually be a messenger of God sent to you to bring a blessing. One of my dear friends is Reverend Renee Molina, who is the pastor of Iglesia de Restauración on Adams and Crenshaw. Um, he says, I came to this country undocumented. I didn't know Jesus yet. And I became a Christian in this country. And my church had 10 members when I started, and it now has 4,000. I think I brought a blessing to this country. <laughs> I was the stranger. I was the other. But I think I brought a blessing to this country. So how do we see the angels? Not just see the beggars. See the angels. But then we have to go even farther. If the other is a believer... That's not just an angel. That's part of your body. That's your arm. How do we see people as part of the same body? So if they hurt, we hurt. You know, if you drop a hammer in your foot, you're not okay. How do we see that? I'm going to say something else about that, but a little later. But the last way that scripture unfolded 
in terms of justice, was a critical move for me. Because this is a scripture about mercy and compassion, right? And we usually think of mercy and justice as different, as at least separate, if not in, in tension. But I want you to go with me on this. It doesn't just say that Jesus saw individuals. It says that he saw the crowds. He saw the crowds. You see the problem and the solution differently when you see individuals or you see the crowds, right? If you see one little child struggling in school and you love that child, you have compassion, what do you do? You tutor the child, right? But if you see 300 children struggling in the same school, you begin to say, hey, what's wrong with the school? Hey, seeing the crowd. We see very individualistically in the United States. How does our understanding change when we see the crowd? So we have to see with the eyes of Jesus, to see the beggars, to see the angels, to see the body, to see the crowds. But then when we see, what do we do? How did Jesus respond when he saw, when he had compassion? This is a trick question. How did Jesus respond? What did he give? Everything. He gave everything he had to give. So the question is, what do we have to give? It's not enough to love with your heart. You have to love with your head as well. You have to love as intelligently and as effectively as you can. So it is good to give a hungry man a fish. If you're hungry, you don't want to wait. You need a fish. But what might be a more intelligent and effective response? Come on, everyone knows this. <laughs> Teach him how to fish. But what happens when you take your little fishing pole down to the pond and there's a wall around the pond? Then it doesn't matter if you know how to fish. You still can't feed your family. You can't get to the pond. I want to talk for a minute about a couple of walls just to give flesh to this. And also because my heart is breaking this morning and so I just have to talk about it. But my heart is not breaking for the first one. It's just one that I want to share with you. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the Frank Jordan Mission in downtown LA, Skid Row. Been there for over 100 years. Um, I was talking to the director a few years ago. He called me and he said, you know, Alexia, when we started out over 100 years ago, we would bring people on the street to Christ. They would get off drugs and alcohol and they'd be off the street. Then things got a little more difficult and we had to give them job training and job placement and we would do that and they would be off the street. He said, but I have a problem. We're giving people job training and job placement and they're living in their cars. In fact, whole families are living in their cars because there's no affordable housing. What do we do about that? Well, that's a wall. They ran into the wall. I'm going to talk to you, brothers and sisters, this morning about the gifts we've been giving that allow us to take down walls. But first of all, I just um, ask your patience because my heart is so broken this morning that I have to talk about a wall that I just feel like I ran into at 60 miles an hour. Um, so I want to talk about this wall by telling you first about Josue. That Josue is the grandson of the lovely little Christian grandma that runs our Lutheran guest house in San Salvador, El Salvador. Um, so Josue is Trinidad's favorite grandson. And um, the part of San Salvador where they live has been taken over by the Mara Salvatrucha. 
Sometimes they refer in the media to the Mara Salvatrucha as a gang. I think a gang is just not the way to refer to them. I think organized crime comes much closer because the areas that they're in, they're not just a problem, they run them. The government doesn't run them, they run them. And it's a reign of terror. So Josue, uh, sprite kid, got to be 15, and the Mara Salvatrucha decided that they wanted him. He didn't want the Mara Salvatrucha, he's a Christian. So he said no, and they um, started to put pressure on him, and he was running from them, and he ran home, and his father, a bus driver, had just gotten home, and his father stepped out and said, you can't have my son. He's a Christian, you can't have him. So they shot him in cold blood. They shot his dad. And then they threatened Josue's younger sister, at that point was 13, and they said, you know, she's a little young, but Josue, you don't join up. And um, she becomes a sex slave of the Mara Salvatrucha, or we traffic her. You know, they make their money trafficking guns, drugs, children. So um, Josue ran for the United States. He is here now with his mother, who is a farm worker. But there's a little problem. You know, you would think that Josue could come forward and apply for asylum, right? We have the Wilbur Wilberforce anti-trafficking law, which has a special provision in it for children from Central America because in recognition of these gangs, these terrible organized crime. And the provision says that, it says very simply, we fought very hard, by the way, for this anti-trafficking legislation a few years ago, it passed during the Bush administration. It says that a child from Central America gets a full asylum process the full hearing process. Now, we actually lost this. We lost the Wilbur Wilberforce anti-trafficking law in the House in August 1st, but we didn't lose it in the Senate, so we didn't lose it. But you know what? Our administration is acting as if we lost it. They're doing something called rocket docket. That's the name for it. If a child like Josue surfaces, if they catch him, um, they don't have any legal representation of any kind. The government does not provide legal representation. They are rushed through the process as fast as possible. Even though the internal studies of the government, and we have our hands on the most recent one, says that 60% of these unaccompanied minors right now that are arriving have valid asylum cases, like Jose's case but they are rushing them through to deport them as quickly as possible. And last night, the reason why my heart is particularly broken is because we, are, we have a guardian angels program that we're starting in our churches, in the Lutheran churches in Southern California. And um, I was, last night was the Spanish speaking training and we had this wonderful young lawyer who was giving her time voluntarily to train us about what to observe for in court so that we can fight this. We're going down to court watch and to pray for the families um, and to, to minister to them. Anyhow, but we're in there, and the young lawyer says, and she's young, so she doesn't know the system, and so she says, I'm confused, you know. Usually with judges, if we have a really good case, we can negotiate a stay, and we can work with them, and, you know, there's a lot of wiggle room. She said, and the judges are telling us that there is no wiggle room, that they have been told to deport the children as quickly as possible, whether or not there is a trafficking situation. She said, I don't understand this. We've never, I've never, I just went, it's political expediency written in the blood of children. I'm sorry, I'm just having a hard time. So I just, but that's the wall, right? That's the wall. We can minister to Josue. 
we can love him, we can take him into our after-school centers, you know, we can, we can help him think about his future, but he has no future unless we can change these practices. He has no future. That's the wall. And his little sister has no future. So Lord, give me the strength and give us the strength to trust you. So, I want to talk about what we do. The decisions that put up the walls or take down the walls are what we call public decisions. A private decision is a decision I make that affects my family, my small business, maybe my church, my neighborhood, my immediate neighborhood. A public decision is a decision that affects us all. It's a policy decision, right? It's a legislative decision. So the question is, do we have gifts that allow us to impact those decisions? When I was a young radical, maybe that will surprise you that I was a young radical. <laughs> Anyhow, I didn't believe we had a democracy in this country. And then I was a missionary in the Philippines under the dictator Ferdinand Marcos, and I said, we do have a democracy in this country. Thanks be to God, we have a democracy. But my brothers and sisters, what do we do with the gifts of democracy? The gifts of democracy, the beauty of a democracy, is that we all have a right to participate in the process of public decision making. The processes that put up our walls or take down our walls. We all have a right. How beautiful. Most of us have vote which, you know, is not actually the most important right to me with regard to this, but people in the civil rights movement died for the vote. The vote matters. But we have more than vote. We have voice. We can actually communicate with our legislators. You know, in fact, we call them our representatives. When my little girl was in school, she's not little anymore, but when she was little, when she was in elementary school, if she acted out, who did they call? They called me. She represented our family. If she didn't do what was right and I hadn't taught her any different, whose fault was that? Mine. Our legislators are in a democracy are our representatives. If we have not called them to do what God wants them to do and they have not done it, whose fault is that? That's our fault. Remember the stewardship parable? It's almost November. I don't know how y'all churches work, but November is when we do it. <laughs> we remind everybody about stewardship in November every year in Lutheran Church. So stewardship parable, right? Ten talents, five talents, one talent. Invest the ten, make ten. Invest the five, make five. The guy, what does he do with the one talent, remember? Buries it. We are burying the gifts of democracy in the ground. And the Lord is not pleased. So how do we use the gifts of democracy for the glory of God to make a difference for his hurting people? And I want to say something for a minute here about being the body of Christ. What I said earlier about seeing the body, I want to talk about being the body. When um, I spoke at a rural Christian college in Iowa a few months ago, I had never been to rural Iowa. It was a cross-cultural experience. <laughs> For them as well, they all showed up and stared at me in large numbers. Um, but they're very honest. They're not politically correct in rural Iowa. So I had a young college student raise his hand, and he said to me, 
Pastor, I have to say that what you're saying just feels like a burden. He said, you know, it's hard enough to be a student and a Christian. It's even harder if I have to love my neighbor. And then if I have to love my neighbor intelligently and do community development, he said, and on top of that, you want me to deal with systems? He said, it just feels like a burden. And it hit me at that moment very powerfully that to have a certain level of privilege in our world is to be able to decide what burdens you take on. If you're born in this country, you never have to deal with our broken immigration system. You never even have to know about Josue if I hadn't come here crying and said it. You don't have to know. If you have enough money to send your children to a private Christian school, you don't ever have to deal with the burden of our broken public education system. If you have employer-provided health insurance, you never have to deal with the burden of our public health care system that's broken. But at the same time as you don't have to deal with these, your brothers and sisters, some of them are crushed, our brothers and sisters, are crushed under the burden of systems that are not working, that are illogical, that are ineffective and inhumane. And then we have to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Amen? But if we go a step farther, if we remember that that's our body, that that's your arm crushed, then something else struck me. I learned in seminary that Jesus' healings were both real and symbolic, right? He really did open the eyes of the blind, but he did that so that we would know he's the light of the world, right? So why do you think Jesus healed so many lepers? What is the disease where you don't feel the pain of your foot? That's leprosy. Because our, the body of Christ is leprous. We don't feel the pain of our extremities who are crushed under the burden of these systems. So we don't really have the choice of what burdens we take on. We may think we do, but we're part of the body of Christ. So we are compelled by his love. So um, I'm going to do a workshop in this later, and I only have 10 minutes left, so I'm not going to go into too much detail. But some of us don't participate in holding our systems accountable because the way that the world does it gives us spiritual indigestion. It feels so messy and so dirty, and the last thing we want to do is get mixed up with it. So I have been working for probably the last 20 years on what it looks like to organize and advocate in a way as if God is real and Jesus is risen because God is real and Jesus is risen. So how do you do justice in a way that is completely shaped and guided by our faith? So that's the workshop this afternoon if you want more details on it. Um, that's also the book that Peter and I wrote. So I have a few copies here, easily available on Amazon or University Press. Um, and you know, when you do it um, with biblical assumptions, then justice flows from mercy. Mercy and justice are not opposite. Mercy takes you to justice. You live it all the way. That's where it takes you. Um, so faith-rooted organizing is also about Christians contributing our unique gifts to the broader movement for justice. We're not the only people who care about the unaccompanied kids. But what do we bring that's different from what everybody else brings? Um, and my favorite organizing instructions from our Lord is to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. 
To be wise as serpents is to take totally seriously the carnal and sinful aspects of our human nature. It's to take absolutely seriously that sometimes people in power hold on to power for dear life. Sometimes people in power fight only for their narrow self-interest. It's true. Let's not be naive. Thanks be to our Lord. We don't have to be naive. He called us to be wise as serpents. But if we are only wise as serpents, we are atheists. We also have to be innocent as doves. To be innocent as doves is to know that the Holy Spirit is alive and well everywhere, even in the chambers of the halls of power. At active before you get there. And our privilege is to accompany and be an ally of the Holy Spirit in what he is doing in people's hearts. Everyone is made in the image of God, and even politicians are capable of great acts of love and sacrificial courage. So to be as innocent as a dove is to believe that. So what I really teach people is how to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves in the halls of power, which in the end, one of the things that I say, I work a lot with young people, and most young people are anarchists at this moment in history, whether they call themselves that or not. They don't believe in our institutions anymore. And you know, I'm sorry, I apologize for my generation. We're part of why. Um, but I want to say that God is bigger than that. Don't limit God. Don't limit God. God has a divine purpose for government. Look at Romans 13. And that was Rome. <laughs> so don't limit God. He can work through our, he can work through our systems. Um, so, but part of what it means to trust God in our systems is that even when you're wise as serpents, you're wise as serpents in a way that's faithful. So I just want to read this with you. This is Luke 18, 1 through 8. So Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. How easy it is, my brothers and sisters, to lose heart, isn't it? When your heart is broken, we just, it's so easy to lose heart. Pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor regarded man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Vindicate me against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will vindicate her, or she will wear me out by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God vindicate his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will vindicate them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So I want you to imagine, first of all, answer me. Are widows powerful people? Not so much. In the time of Jesus, not so much. So if, wait a minute. So if you're a widow and you're smart and you don't have faith, and you know you've experienced injustice, and you know that the only person who can give you justice doesn't fear God or respect people. What's the logical thing to do? Come on, you know, think about it. You're a widow. You know this guy is a jerk. What are you going to do? Logical thing to do if you don't have any faith. 
nothing. That's right. You stay home. You conserve the little resources you have. You don't waste your resources. But Jesus calls this woman an example of faith. Why? Because she doesn't do that. Because even though this judge doesn't fear God or respect people, she doesn't give up. She trusts. She believes that God is going to give her justice even if the government is corrupt. But not if she stays home and just prays. If she stands up and resists and fights and struggles, that God will respond himself. And you know, Jesus is very clear in this. Do we see a conversion in the heart of the judge? No, he's still a jerk. He still doesn't fear God or respect people. The miracle is not the conversion of the judge. The miracle is that justice is done. But why does he do justice? Why does he do it? Somebody tell me. Right, because she bothers him. In fact, I love the King James on this one. It says, because she troubles and wearied him. <laughs> we all know how to trouble and weary our parents. We all know about this. <laughs> trouble and weary. It's a critical mass of pressure, my brothers and sisters. If we talk in the legislative sense, it's a critical mass of pressure. And it can be done faithfully. It can be done faithfully. Even if you know that all the obstacles are against you. Even if you know that we've got a cold political calculation in the blood of children. We don't give up because we trust our God to give us justice. But we're wise as serpents. We don't pretend that people are different than they are. But we also know that dove power is real. And I think all I have time for is to tell you one story to help you not be an atheist in the public arena. And then if you want to learn more about dove power, come to the workshop. So because dove power is both pastoral and prophetic, you can see a bunch of stuff about it there that I'm going to go into. And uh, and I want to talk about what it means to pray as if you believe in the public arena. But before I do that, I just want to tell you one story, and then I'll close. So um, this is a story about the real-life reality of dove power. So how many of you have either seen Bishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa, or you've seen a picture of him? How many of you? Is he a tall man? No, he's five foot tall and round. You have to have this picture in your mind, because it will help you see. So this is a true story about him. So of course, he's one of the, he was one of the great warriors against the evil system of apartheid. Um, so one Sunday morning, the regime sent soldiers into the cathedral with rifles, Easter morning, and they rounded the cathedral. Can you imagine how the people felt? Terrified. They were terrified that he would preach against apartheid, and they would shoot him and they would shoot other people as well. And that was totally realistic. They shot Archbishop Romero in front of the altar. Totally realistic. They were also scared, though, that he wouldn't speak, because if he didn't speak, the regime had won. So what did Bishop Tutu do? He starts bouncing up and down on his heels, and he starts laughing, laughing uproariously, laughing like a child. What happens when someone starts laughing like that? contagious. Everybody starts laughing, even the soldiers. And in the midst of all the laughter, Bishop Tutu calls out and he says, little brothers, you know our God is a God of justice. You know that we're going to win. He's the God of the Exodus. We don't want a single one of you to miss a moment of the celebration 
because the party wouldn't be complete without you. Join us now. He goes on to preach against apartheid fiercely, and nobody shoots him. What stopped them from shooting? It wasn't the power of violence. That was on the other side. It wasn't the power of wealth. There was no wealth in the room. It wasn't even numbers. There were a thousand people there. What stopped them from shooting? Anybody? What stopped them? What? Laughter. Joy. Joy has enormous power. He, they're probably a little confused. Um, I would go a little deeper than that. I would say that perfect love casts out fear. That he looked past the rifles and he saw the boys and he loved them. You know, a South African friend of mine heard me tell this story and he said, you know, you don't know that Bishop Tutu did this kind of thing all the time. They would stop his car at checkpoints and he'd get out and try to convert the soldiers. He loved those boys. And his faith, he believed so deeply that the kingdom of God is in our midst that people around him felt it. That's what happened with our Lord, right? That's the power that is in us. That is the power that is in us to tear down walls. If we buried in the ground, God help us and God help the world. Amen.